right, students. Let's now have Homer's Iliad 2019, Lecture 19, Books 12 and 13, and even 14, Part 1, Slides 179 to 198. So let's start with, it says an omen from the sky, but uh, really that's not the first thing we see in Book 12. The first thing that we encounter in Book 12 is a small excursus on what will happen after the Trojan War. It's uh, one of those interesting moments outside of time that Homer gives to us, outside of the normal course of the narrative. And the idea is this, that Apollo and Poseidon, who both helped create the Trojan Wall, which had grand sacrifices made to it and thus was made under appropriate conditions, will one day destroy, through flooding the various rivers around Troy, the Achaean Wall. The idea behind that being, and uh, having listened to my recent lectures, I see that I say the idea being quite a bit, which is a sort of funny thing to notice about oneself, one's verbal ticks. In any case, the idea is that because the Achaeans, under the night, without the, uh, without the acceptance of the Trojans, without also, having, um, without also having sacrifice to the gods, have done something um, uh, unpropitious, something uh, sort of against the Zinnia, or the guest-host relationship between the gods and the mortals. And so, because they did not create their wall with the help of, or with the approval of the gods, one day the, the wall will fall. And so you might see some deep allegory behind that, that that which is done without the will of the gods is doomed to fail in the Achaean universe, which is an interesting idea. In any case, here we see an interaction between Pulidamus, and on this particular slide, I give you two interactions, and we'll see at least three of them in book 12. You will consistently see that Hector, as a field marshal on the field of battle, is a talented fighter, but not a talented strategist. He leads by emotion not by intelligence. And in fact, his intelligent advisor, Pulidamus, he sometimes listens to, he sometimes doesn't listen to. Today we'll get a good smattering of both. Because in fact, the first thing that Pulidamus counsels when the Trojans come to the ditch full of spikes and wall of the Achaeans is we need to get off our chariots. Because our horses, they're not going to do well with spikes. They might rear up and then fall on the spikes and then will fall on the spikes and die. They're not going to negotiate these very well. So we're going to have to fight on foot against these Achaeans. And one of you asked about siege engines. They don't have any engines of siege. They don't, uh, the wall's really not actually, frankly, that high for the Achaeans. Uh, a siege engine is some sort of ladder or ladder-like uh, object that enables you to get close to a wall and then climb the wall without having something like molten iron or molten bronze or, uh, in this case, a rock or an arrow thrown at you to kill you. They don't have that sort of thing. In fact, you'll hear about the Trojans going up to the wall and like pulling pieces off of it. In fact, Sarpedon will help to do that, and it will be the case that Hector will break through the wall today and will be fighting against Aias, and Aias will be on top of one of his ships with a long spear trying to stab at him, and they'll be yelling at each other, and uh, it's a really intense scene. In any case, Puladama says we need to get off our horses, and we need to go up to uh, the wall and start pulling pieces off of it, and Hector says, okay, okay. But a little bit later, lines 195 to 225, Pulidamus will see a very stark symbol. Uh, uh, the symbol, a symbol that actually, frankly, is very, very similar to the flag of Mexico. You may have noticed before, the flag of Mexico has the Catholic colors of red, green, and white, which are the three uh, colors also of the Italian flag. And I call uh, both those flags Catholic because those are the three colors of the holy virtues. In fact, when you read the Divine Comedy next year, you will see sort of where those colors come from. You notice red, green, and white all on the colors of Dante. Those are all very Catholic colors. Those are also the colors, of course, of a holiday which is coming up. Who can guess which holiday that is? 
Christmas, clearly. Yes, Christmas, clearly. You put white lights on a green tree with red ornamentation. The red ornamentation is supposed to indicate the blood of Christ, by the way. Uh, it's very grisly. And so, yes, yes, red is often blood. Uh, I love it. In any case, I mentioned the Mexican flag. Well, you know that it's sort of similar to uh, the American symbol, but not the American flag. What is it that's on the Mexican flag right in the middle? Who knows? Yes? An eagle. An eagle? An eagle and a snake are the particular images I was thinking about. Yes, and here we see an eagle with a snake in its claws with the snake still fighting the eagle. And this is one of those moments where we have an omen given to us, and we actually have a correct interpretation given to us about that omen. So, there is an eagle. The eagle is also the symbol of Zeus, by the way. He sends down his eagle to do his will. A snake, snake is often a symbol of Athena. Snake is also, in this case, since Athena is on the side of the Achaeans, a symbol of the Achaeans themselves. And since Zeus is helping the Trojans, the eagle is a symbol for the Trojans. So it looks like there's a battle going on between them. And if the snake is in the air, in the claws of the eagle, looks like who's doing a little bit better right now? Eagle. However, the snake still got what at his disposal? His teeth. His teeth, yes, exactly so. And so what happens is this snake bites at the eagle, gets dropped to the ground, and it slithers off looking all angry. Well, Pulidamus is a good prophet. He says, oh, I get what that means. What that means is that we are going to have a battle. Calm down back there. We are going to have a battle against the Achaeans. It is going to look as if we are winning, but it is in, in fact going to end up enraging them and leading to them fighting even better in the long term. And so he will encourage uh, Hector not to break through the Achaean wall today and not to go through there. His advice will not be taken. The Achaeans will be enraged, and the Achaeans will take out their vengeance on the Trojans. All right. In any case, Zeus then inspires Sarpedon to attack one of the gates. As I was telling you, it will be the case of the Lycans. There will, well, something I should mention is that the Trojans are going to break themselves into no fewer than five different flanks. There will be Paris leading one, Hector leading one, Helenus leading one, Deiphobos leading one, and Aeneas leading one. And they're going to have an all-out assault on several different sections of wall. Um, Sarpedon will be leading one as well. Um, and so... And uh, it may be the case that Deiphobus and Hellenus lead the same one. In any case, Sarpedon then gives a very, very famous speech to Glaucus, who he sees lingering off to the side. Remember that it is the case, and I think this is very human, that it is not always true that every fighter <laughs> is fighting as hard as they possibly can. It's sort of like when you see construction workers on the side of the road, and you see some of them are working very hard, some of them are uh, supporting through conversation. It's the same case with uh, military affairs in this ancient world, in this 12th uh, century slash 8th century when it's being reported that sometimes you're fighting really hard, sometimes you get injured and need to take a break, sometimes you just need to take a quick break, sometimes you need to go back to your ship to get a new spear, sometimes you need to take the, uh, the accoutrements or the armor of somebody you just killed back to your ship, sometimes then you have uh, some sort of sustenance or something like that. It is not the case that people are fighting as hard as they can at each moment. And so Sarbadon will speak to his uh, cousin and lieutenant Glaucus here. In any case, Aias the Greater and Tugris rush to defend the wall from Sarpedon and the Lycaeans. And during this time, Hector, lines 445 to 471, does smash through the Achaean walls to the, or wall to the ships. And so I've had to skip over quite a bit, and I will skip over quite a bit of Book 13. But that is sort of the essence of what happens. Let's look at this speech. 
by Sarpanon. This is one of my favorite speeches in the Iliad. I hope it will be one of your favorite speeches as well, because this is true. Glaucus, why is it you and I are honored before others with pride of place? The choice meets, and the filled wine cups in Lycia, and all men look on us as if we were immortals. We are appointed, or appointed, a great piece of land by the banks of Xanthos, good land, orchard and vineyard, and plowland for the planting of wheat. Therefore, it is our duty in the forefront of the Lycians to take our stand and bear our part of the blazing of battle, so that man of the close-armored Lycians may say of us, Indeed, these are no ignoble men who are lords of Lycia, these kings of ours who feed upon the fat sheep, appointed, and drink the exquisite sweet wine, since there is strength of valor in them, since they fight in the forefront of the Lycians. Man, supposing you and I, escaping this battle, would be able to live on forever, ageless, immortal, so neither would I myself go on fighting in the foremost, nor would I urge you into the fighting where men win glory. But now, seeing that the spirits of death stand close about us in their thousands, no man can turn aside, nor escape them. Let us go on and win glory for ourselves, or yield it to others. Something interesting about that is obviously you notice this red figure vase painting Ampera uh, right next to that quote, and you notice that it says Sarpedon, and you notice that Sarpedon has a spear in him, and you notice that it says Sarpedon's death. Obviously this is somebody who lives by the words that he speaks. He says to his friend Glaucus, If you would never die, I would never ever ask you to fight and risk your immortal life. Like, you will someday die. And, well, everybody around you treats you with great admiration and respect. And why do they give you the things that show their admiration? Why do they give you good land? Why do they give you a nice place at the table? Why do they give you the best wine and fruits? Well, because of the deeds of valor that you commit. Because you are so valuable to us. And so, even though it is the case that you will die, you might as well die gloriously. And in fact, I love that. Let us go on and win glory for ourselves or yield it to others. Because even if you lose, you've made it so that someone else can win. And that's almost like the ultimate way to see an opponent or an enemy. That you are so gifted and great that if they win against you, it is an ultimate glory for them. And that that is still a good thing even though you have fallen or died. And, well, you might well want to think to yourself, is there any better way to live than that? any honest way to live that's better than that. In any case, Hector has broken through the Achaean Wall, chaos reigns, and Zeus departs, and Poseidon emerges. Yes, I think you're all noticing now just how much nicer these slides were than they were, they were last time. Now they have headings. Now the pictures are on the left. The writing's on the right. I think that's actually a little bit more natural. Maybe it's because I'm left-eye dominant. In any case, Zeus, oddly enough, in book 13, right there in the middle of the Iliad, decides, mm, this giant battle in this ten-year-long war bores me. I'm going to go look at this other battle between these Hippomolgoi, these Thracians, and these Mycenaeans. And uh, immediately when he turns his eyes away, it's like immediately if a teacher leaves the room full of students. Do they remain on task doing obediently exactly what they have been instructed to do? Absolutely not. Like cockroaches, when a light turns on, they scatter about and do random things that they have not been instructed to do. Or, or like mice, when a cat is not present. They go about flitting about and playing. I assume that's what mice do. 
by having watched several cartoons when I was younger. In any case, Poseidon emerges from Samos to his undersea palace. It's actually very interesting. It, it appears as if he comes down a mountain and then exits from the sea and then comes down the mountain again. One of those interesting moments where clearly one poet or two poets or three poets were sort of mixing a story together and trying to make one. And in any case, he appears first. Uh, something interesting. Because he has been barred from going down onto the field of battle by Zeus, he tries to get off on a technicality here. He is not in his own body when he goes down. He will take on the form of other Achaeans. He will impersonate Achaeans. He will impersonate Calchas, Thoas, and an old man. And so, technically, he has plausible deniability. Plausible deniability is when you can say, oh, I misunderstood what the instructions were, and so I did the wrong thing. And so you can see why that's an interesting sort of thing to say. That said, why did Zeus turn his eyes away? Well, he assumed that all the, all the gods, perhaps not understanding his own siblings and children, would just do as he had said, because the threat of the mighty thunderbolt is so terrifying that you would imagine that nobody would ever act against Zeus, seeing as it could even burn alive a god. Well, that said, Poseidon still wants to help the Achaeans. So he appears as Calchas, and he breathes valor into the Iontes, that's Aias the Lesser, and Aias the Greater. They will be extremely, uh, uh, they will be instrumental, they will be essential to the Achaean defensive effort now. And Aias the Lesser, very similar to Ellen, Helen in Book 3, looking at the physical features of Calchas as he walks off his calves and his legs, apparently they're more beautiful than normal humans' calves and feet. And he can recognize, how is a god? A god is on our side. A god is helping us. And therefore, even if Zeus is against us, someone is helping us. We have a chance. And so they fight even harder. And perhaps that's all it takes to have hope, to have just the smallest chance of success. And perhaps that small thread will lead them to the tapestry of victory. In any case, next Poseidon <coughs> encourages Teucris, Thoas, Marianes, and Antilochus, and you're not going to need to know a million names like if you didn't have these lectures. In any case, I love this red figure face painting of Poseidon. You can tell it's Poseidon because of the trident. Trident means three teeth. It's a three-toothed weapon. In any case, Hector urges on the, the Trojans like a boulder rushing down a mountain. That means he has tremendous momentum right now. He is ready to make a big impact on the day. Teucris kills his man. Remember that Teucris is the illegitimate half-brother of Aias the Greater. <coughs> he, like Aias the Lesser, is also an orator, and actually in rereading this time, after so many times, I find out that he is described as the best archer of the Achaeans. He is one of the best archers of the Achaeans. Aias the Lesser is, of course, an incredible archer of the Achaeans. Odysseus you may not have known as an incredible archer <coughs> as well. In any case, Hector, while aiming for Teucris, hits Amphimachus. This is a theme that you see reiterated over and over again in the Iliad, that a champion aims for another champion and then ends up hitting the charioteer or some lesser-known character that happens to be near that champion. Uh, that happens to Hector several times with his charioteer. I told you there's like a... a, a um, how do I even put this, uh, a cascading circle or a, a, a turnstile full of charioteers for Hector just because they can't stay alive because so many Achaeans aim for him and come close to getting him. In any case, Aias the Greater then beats Hector away with his spear and Poseidon in the form of Thoas exhorts Idomeneus to fight <coughs> alongside him. Good. Poseidon continues to help the Achaeans. While careful not to fight himself, remember he is not 
uh, explicitly going against the will of Zeus, because he is taking on the form of Achaeans, not showing up in his own form, and he is encouraging them. And technically it is the case that Athena had argued with uh, Zeus at the beginning of Book 8 for the ability to continue to counsel the Achaeans. Now, whether going down in uh, the form of an Achaean and breathing valor in them is simply encouraging them or actually helping them is, again, a question for the lawyers, the sophists, to, uh, to argue for themselves, perhaps for us to argue during our next seminar. In any case, he helps the Achaeans defend their left flank. Remember that there are several different contingents of Trojans. They're coming from essentially all sides, though they can't come from all sides because, of course, the Achaeans are backed up against the ocean, which is a bad situation for them, but also part of the reason why they can fight so hard right now. Hector continues to fight near where he broke through the Achaean Wall by Aias the Greater and Protosileus' ship. The Iontes defend the ships. Something interesting about Protosileus. Protos, where we get the word protagonist, mean, or, and prototype means first. Laos, like Menelaus, is where we get the word laity from. It means person. First person or first people. Protosileus was the first man to jump off his ship when the Achaeans got to Troy, hoping to be the first man to get a kill of the Trojans, clearly. And, well, deeply ironically, though he wanted to be the first person to kill a Trojan, he was the first person to be killed by a Trojan. So his ships remain there, there on the front. He was the first person to jump out, and, well, this is a lesson. Be the first person to jump out in front of a military, <laughs> of an entire other military force, probably be the first person to get wooded by that military force. Killed by them. <coughs> and so maybe you want to be more like Odysseus and me in the middle of the pack. In any case, moving on. Idomeneus then gives us a quick excursus on the difference between cowards and brave people. And I really wanted to introduce this to you because I think when I read this language to you, you'll see that this is how we still talk about cowards and brave people. And perhaps you can tell me whether you agree or disagree with Idomeneus, the great... <laughs> The great warrior and chieftain's advice, you who also have so much, so much battle experience. Then Idomeneus, lord of the Cretans, answered him in turn, I know your valor and what you are. He's speaking to Marianas' lieutenant here, who is about to uh, uh, kill a couple people in nasty ways. He's going to get another guy in the liver. He's also going to get somebody right in the pelvis, between their belly button and uh, uh, their genitalia, which I can only imagine is just uh, an agonizing way to die. Actually, the man is described as dying like an ox bellowing when it is caught and enslaved. But you can only imagine an ox, I mean, deeply disturbing, uh, that imagery. It's like, this person dies screaming. And so, <clears throat> I know your valor and what you are. Why need you speak of it? If now beside the ships, all the best of us were to assemble for a hidden position. Funny that he says a hidden position, because how the Achaeans will win the war is they will take a hidden position within a, an effigy called the Trojan Horse, and which will be led into the Trojan city, and the Trojan Horse will be made of wood, so they could just light it on fire and kill all of these Achaeans. So one of the points that Ominius is making here is when you're hiding from people, that's when you show whether you're scared or not. And something I always ask the students is, you remember playing hide-and-seek? and then hiding, and then how it felt when somebody was coming to look for you, and how it was probably the case that you actually needed to use the restroom during that time, and there were things you might have done that might have revealed yourself, like all of a sudden you need to sneeze, or to sniffle, or, oh, you're so thirsty, and there's water out there, and oh my goodness, do you reveal something about yourself when you're hiding, which also might lead you to more macabre, grotesque, and scary things to think about when you think about, say, like the Holocaust, and uh, the Jewish people who had to hide in Germany and various uh, uh, non-ally states 
and uh, spend their lives hiding. Perhaps you've heard the story of Anne Frank, which is a story about someone having to hide in an attic for several months and sat with a sad conclusion, too. In any case, he talks about when you are hiding, you show your character. Let's see. If now, beside the ships, all the best of us were to assemble for a hidden position, and there man's courage is best decided. Where the man who is a coward and the brave man showed themselves clearly, the skin of the coward changes color. We've seen that before. Whose skin did we see change color in book three? Yes? Paris. Paris. And you would describe him as brave or cowardly? Cowardly. Very much so, indeed. The skin of the coward changed color one way and another, and the heart inside him has no control to make him sit steady. But he shifts his weight from one foot to another. There's actually a weakness when someone's speaking, when they just sit there in front of you in the same spot and do this over and over. You might notice that you do this. You probably do this because one of your legs starts to kind of shake. And so you're like, okay, if I just kind of walk, one of maybe people won't see my legs shaking like this. It's like, uh... You just have to get better. You just have to get better. But he shifts his weight from one foot to another, then settles firmly on both feet, and the heart inside his chest pounds violent as he thinks of the desperates, and his teeth chatter together. <laughs> Who did we see recently whose teeth chattered together when he was very scared in a situation out during the night when a terrible predator, far scarier than a saint, was going to kill him? Ooh, he was a traitor. It was book 10. He was a Trojan, yes? Dolon. Yes, yes, we see elements of Dolon and Paris, two Trojans, in these uh, descriptions of cowards. Perhaps we agree with this. Your heart can't maintain a steady beat. You move from side to side. Your teeth chatter. You think about death. Mm, sounds right. But the brave man's, the brave man's skin <clears throat> will not change color, nor is he too much frightened once he has taken his place in the hidden position. But his prayer is to close as soon as may be in bitter division. He wants the fight. And there no man could make light of your battle strength or your hand's work, even were you to be wounded in your work with spear caster or spear shark. Okay, pay close attention to this. I'm going to ask you a question based on this. The weapon would not strike behind your neck nor in your back, but would be driven straight against the chest or the belly as you made your way onward through the meeting of the champions. But come, let us no longer stand here talking of these things like children, for fear some man may arrogantly scold us. What is... Idomeneus saying his opinion of Marianne's is, if he says, I do not expect that you will die with a spear or arrow in your neck, the back of your neck, or your back, how is he saying that Marianne's will not die, indicating what he believes about him? Yes? He will not die running away, and therefore with a spear in his back, therefore indicating that he is a what and not a what? He is not a coward and is a brave man. So all of that goes to say that uh, Idomeneus defines his terms and says, this is what a coward is, this is what a brave man is, you're a brave man, so let's go be brave men right now. And so you can see that pump-up speeches are happening both on the Trojan side, the, the uh, pump-up speech from Sarpedon to Glaucus about the heroic code, the motivating speech, and then also on the Achaean side as well. It's almost like motivation is a huge part of battle. It's almost like motivation is a huge part of any human whether it be academic or athletic or even, uh, you know, of course, violent. All right, so continuing on. Iris the Greater earns great glory. I love this image of him. This is obviously not an ancient, ancient image, but excellent. You see Iris looking monstrous here, not wearing a corslet because he didn't wear a corslet because he had a giant shield, uh, and just looking sort of like a monster. 
uh, with several people dead around him. And, you know, that's not a bad idea. That's, that's the right idea of, of Iris. And you can see his horse-haired helmet. I'm actually going to take some images. I found a great site that has some beautiful images of Trojans in Achaean's armor. And they really look very cool. Um, I, there's really no other way to put it. Like, they don't just look scary or, like, strong. They look cool. And the, a lot of gold and bronze and red being used. It's like, these guys took seriously the fact that this might be the day that they were going to die. And that they were likely going to die in that armor. And so, that's, that's why, you know, I think that's the old idea of the adage behind why you dress nice in the morning. Because this might be the day that you die. In any case, very much sure for them. Many support Telamonian Ias. And they even hold his massive shield when he's tired. I just want you to think about how effective a combatant he is. And how ineffective some of the people are around him. The best use they have in the battle is to hold the shield for Ias while he's tired. And he's so gifted that he's actually getting tired of what? Killing people during the course of this battle? That's incredible. And, well, uh, he can't get too tired because right now he is essentially the sole hope for the Achaeans. He is their top fighter. He is one of the major Achaeans who is not injured. Remember the Diomedes, Menelaus, uh, or excuse me, Diomedes, Agamemnon, not Menelaus. Menelaus just sort of perpetually injured in my mind, uh, but he's not. Uh, what is it? Diomedes, Odysseus, uh, Eurypolis, Machaon, and I think I'm forgetting one other one, yes. And Agamemnon are all injured right now. Ice the Greater is not injured. Ice the Lesser is not injured. Idomeneus and Marianes and Thoas are not injured. They're going to have to really pick up the slack force. Also, Antilochus, who's one of the sons of Nestor, essentially like a young version of Nestor who can use a spear, will be helping out. All right. Pulidamus. Here we go. Here's another one of these moments. Uh, lines 725 to 750 in book 13. He advises Hector to listen to reason and to fall back and to take counsel, counsel excuse me, for how to deal with Aias the Greater. Because even though they've broken through this wall, Aias the Greater, on a ship with a long spear, continues to kill people and to repel the Trojans. Well, Hector sort of takes this advice, sort of doesn't take this advice. He does take the advice. He does say that his men can retreat. But he says that he will not himself retreat. He will continue to fight. So technically, he, uh, he takes the advice, but slightly changes it. Slightly changes it when it comes to himself. He changes the details, you might say. So he says, let the others retreat. I will fight on. And here is an excellent picture, I think, of Pulidamus stopping the horses from earlier. When he says, hey, we can't really take the chariots and the horses to that spike pit and to that wall. I don't think they're going to navigate the spikes particularly well. And, well, I, he's probably right. All right. Hector then goes looking for his brothers Helenus and Deiphobos. He goes about to check the flanks. Now recall, with the help of Poseidon, the Achaeans have performed very admirably during Book 13. Even though it is the case that Zeus is on the side of the Trojans, Zeus is not watching during Book 13. Zeus is not actively helping the Trojans. Poseidon is actively helping the Achaeans. So even though it is the case that the Achaeans will lose the battle today, they are not losing this particular moment. And the evidence for that is that several of the Trojan leaders who, who were leading particular flanks are either injured or now dead. And so when Hector goes to look for Helenos and Deiphobos, and remember, remember that these, these two, of all the brothers of Hector, Helenos and Deiphobos are second and third most famous to Paris. Obviously, we all know Paris. Deiphobos, we'll see him again in the Aeneid. He'll be horrifically disfigured after how he dies. Something I'll tell you about him is that when Paris dies during the Trojan War, after the Iliad, of course, because so many of the interesting things happened after and before the Iliad, Deiphobos will marry Helen. 
And when the Troy, when Troy is sacked by the Achaeans, Helen will be in Deiphobus' house. So when the Achaeans want to take out all of their anger from ten years on one man, that one man will not be Paris, who will already be dead. It will be Deiphobus, and they will do terrible things to him. Horrific things. Horrific things that I will tell you in horrific detail. Yes, not too many details, but enough just so that you understand what it is that happened. And Helenus, just remember that he will be caught by Odysseus after the Iliad, and he will be milked for information that will be used to destroy Troy. Helenus is, in some ways, just as bad as Dolon, though not yet. Though not yet. In any case, know their names. Know their names. In any, and also, in any case, Hector goes looking for Helenus and Deiphobus, but who does he find? He finds Paris lurking off to the side. Actually, it's pretty funny. Paris is encouraging the other troops. So he's like sitting there being like, go get him, go get him, go get him. But he's not going to get him himself. And so Hector yells at him, calls him evil, Paris, cajoling, woman-loving, handsome, all the four things that he usually calls him. And then Paris decides to fight alongside Hector. And something sort of sad about Her Paris's character is he is described as a pretty good fighter. And as we know, even though his aim isn't perfect, he has managed to knock three uh, cans off the battlefield, including their healer, Machaon, including Diomedes himself. And so, you know, it's useful for them when he fights. I like this picture because I just think it, it makes it makes Hector look very strong and masculine. Uh, <clears throat> Paris obviously looks fairly effeminate here, which would have been a vice to this culture. In any case, I said, this is how book 13 will conclude, and then we'll just have a couple things to say on book 14, and then we will conclude the lecture for the day. Ias the Greater challenges Hector. He sees Hector there, down below the ship. He yells a challenge at him. Then Hector calls Ias an inarticulate ox, which is perhaps some of the evidence that the Athenian playwrights in the 5th century used in order to make Ias the Greater, like Heracles, out to be something of a, uh, well, I guess the most appropriate word is moron. They make him seem very dumb. Uh, in later plays. Not a very intelligent human. And, and yet, I, I don't see that evidence exactly uh, in the embassy to Achilles, nor in this scene. He seems fairly articulate, but that may just be because Homer makes everybody articulate, even the unintelligent people. In any case, Hector claims that if only he were the son of Zeus and Hera, if only he had the powers of a god, that he would kill Aias and all the Achaeans, but that is a big if, because of course, that if is a contrary to fact if. He is not the son of Zeus. He is not the son of Hera. He does not have the power to kill Aias nor all the Achaeans. These are things that he wishes would come to pass. These are not things that will come to pass. All right. In any case, moving on. We have two slides left today. Book 14 begins. Nestor sees... Nestor, recall, is back at his tent because he has administered to the care of Machaon. And remember that he also had a visit from Patroclus under the advisement of uh, Achilleus recent, recently. He hears the fighting. and leaves Machaon in his tent. And he comes out to see what's happening. Well, he sees a bunch of Achaeans. He sees a bunch of Achaeans running about in shameful flight and confusion. Well, he thinks, what can I do about this? Should I go fight and help them? Well, he's an old man and he's not that good a fighter right now. Is that the best thing he can do? Well, another thing he can do is give counsel. And, well, if he goes to find Agamemnon, which he could do because Agamemnon's back at camp because Agamemnon is injured, then, well, maybe he can give advice to Agamemnon, and through his advice, he can be of more service to the Achaeans, and that strikes him as the better idea. And so he goes to find Agamemnon. 
On the way, he meets Diarmides, Agamemnon, and Odysseus. All of them are injured and using their spears as walking sticks. Make sure you're ready. Now, when they all come together, they have sort of an ad hoc assembly meeting here. What is an ad hoc assembly meeting? It's a meeting that just happens in that particular place in that particular way. And Agamemnon shares his fears. He says, oh, these Achaeans are so angry at me. I know they're angry at me because the reason they're out there dying right now is because Peleades, uh, uh, the son of Peleus, Achilleus, is no longer fighting alongside them. And the reason he's not fighting alongside them is that I took away one of his pieces of Garros and this, thus his teammate, and now he's no longer willing to fight for me, even though I offered him so many Garros, so many uh, 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 items that would increase his teammate. And so I, I just don't know if the Achaeans want to fight with me anymore. And, you know, maybe something we could do is uh, we could move some of the ships out into the out into the bay, and then at night we could get in those ships, and then we could sail away. <laughs> wow. Well, this is in Book 14, line 65 to 81. Agamemnon suggesting for the second or third time, depending on whether you count Book 2 when he jokingly suggested that the Achaeans leave, the second or third time that he has suggested fleeing. He is again discouraged. He has again lost his courage. And just as last time Diomedes spoke against him, just as in the first time it was Odysseus who, uh, who uh, dealt with his damage because of the council of Hera and Athena, recall that Athena came down and told Odysseus, fix this situation after all the Achaeans were scattered. Well, again, it comes down to Odysseus to fix this situation. And he says, Now I utterly despise your heart for the thing you have spoken. While we do pull out our ships, the Trojans will destroy us. Lines 84 to 103, he says, if we try and pull out our ships, especially if we do it now, while the Trojans are streaming in to the Achaean camp, what is to defend us while we turn our attention to taking our ships out into the water? The Trojans will then slash us at the back, throw spears at us, throw rocks at us, kill us while we're attempting to do that. That's not even a, it's not even a viable option. It's not even a cowardly option. It's just not even an option. It's guaranteed death. And so Odysseus thinks it's a very foolish idea and says, well, let's do something else. Agamemnon admits, not his best idea. Um, it's a, an idea born of fear, not a strategy. In any case, Diomedes, young as he is, suggests, well, why don't we return to the fighting? Though, because they are injured, obviously, they are not going to fight. But what they're going to do is sort of like what a star or basketball player is supposed to do when he's injured. Does he stay at home or go sit on the sidelines during a game for his team? Well, the idea is that he's supposed to be there on the sidelines, supporting, encouraging his team. And that's what Diomedes, Odysseus, and uh, Agamemnon are going to do right here. They are going to go on the edge of the battle so that they cannot be hit by projectiles, rocks, uh, bronze shot arrows, spears. And uh, they're going to encourage people. They're going to make an appearance. In any case, Poseidon then appears to Agamemnon, now in his third form. Remember, first he was Calchas, then he was Thoas, now he is an old man. And he encourages him. He says, listen, Achilles is pitiless. And he can essentially enjoy his valor and loneliness, though so that's a quote from uh, Nestor. The gods are not angry with you, Agamemnon. And, well, Poseidon is right, because he's a god, so he knows. He says, you will see Troy fall. And then he lets out a yell of nine to 10,000 voices, which if you can imagine being in, like, say, like soccer or football or baseball stadium, especially during the playoffs, such a roar is encouraging. It's motivating. And so he implants great strength into the Achaeans. And our next lecture, we are going to see, uh, <laughs> this is literally a tete-a-tete. -tete. That means a head-to-head. -head. Their heads are touching each other of Hera and Zeus. So obviously I'm using that expression, that French expression, uh, euphemistically.